you. What about this one for my nephew? A superb choice. Oh, great. Yeah, provided he has already read Infinite Crisis and 52 and is familiar with the reestablishment of the DC multiverse. Who am I? Cypher? The gayest X-Man? I recently read this novel called Watchmen. I've never read a comic book like this. I used to read Betty comics, but that's it. I've never read, like, real, real comic books. This worked my out. Excellent! Hello, hello, hello. This is Chris and Eric's Songbox Adventure. I'm Chris. And I am Eric. This is week two of Spooktober, our annual month full of horror and the supernatural. And this week's topic is one of your choosing, so I'll let you do the lead-in. Well, this week we read Dracula, motherfucker. By uh, Alex DeCampi and Erica Henderson. Uh, it's DeCampi writing and Henderson on the art. And it is a 1970s neo-noir take on Dracula. I mean, the story's not from the 70s, but it's set in the 70s. Yeah, it's this... Let me check when this came out, actually. Let's see. 2020. Yeah, it's... uh. 2020 book with a 1970s setting vibe and aesthetic drawing on the 1897 novel. I've read a fair amount of Dracula comics and I think this is one of the better ones pretty easily. Dracula's like if you read the book it's actually kind of impossible to adapt like literally no adaptation has just done dracula unless it's an adaptation where they are just reading the book dracula because it is actually there's so many different characters and the plot doesn't work in any sort of traditional act structure like and all the things that people sort of remember best about it are from, like, the very beginning and the very end, but the vast majority of this book is this weird bit in the middle. And so I think that most of the best things that do anything with Dracula are just like, I mean, it's Dracula, you kind of get who Dracula is, and we're gonna go off of that. Yeah, besides just, you know, everyone being drawn to Dracula as a character... And then also his wives, which we will be specifically talking about this week. Part, I feel, of the novel sort of inherently needing to be changed up an adaptation or inspiration as opposed to any sort of, like, really close following of every single detail is it's the sort of book that simply thrives in being a book you know like the structure is so inherent to the way that it's read with just the general conceit of like most of it taking the form of diary entries or newspaper clippings it's sort of a feeling of just like rummaging around in people's old papers and like reading their accounts in a way where you can't really do and have it be as thrilling on page or on screen if it's like just continually filming someone holding a piece of paper or 
say in a comic if you had to keep adding framing panels of again just someone holding up the diary or whatever yeah the epistolary nature of it's like another part of that i i to be clear i adore the book it's actually one of my favorite books i think it's great and it's just like there was a lot of years where i was kind of annoyed that every adaptation just sort of jettisons huge chunks of it um, or we'll take like three characters and just make them the same person because they want to have someone do these things in the plot, but they don't want to have to like be like, oh, here's everyone's names. You've got to know stuff like that. Like the uh, original 1930s movie makes Jonathan Harker and Renfield the same guy. Like the opening of the book is the same, but the end of that first like chunk where he's in that castle with Dracula just ends with Dracula driving him insane. And then he's just Renfield for the rest of the movie, but they're calling him Jonathan Harker. It's very like, it's weird. If you're someone like me who read the book first and you look at every adaptation, you're like, what is happening? And so I think when you just jettison the book entirely and you're just like, Dracula is just a thing that people know. You say Dracula, like, yes, the vampire guy. It's so much better every time. And this is one of those that does that. And also, I'll be honest, the main reason we're reading this is because Erica Henderson's art is absolutely insanely perfect. It's beautiful. Yeah, it's a great example of just like comic art as storytelling, you know, and I suppose just sort of how difficult it can be to distinguish where writing ends and artwork begins in terms of like narrative comic storytelling. I also like the novel Dracula. I probably have less history of it than you do. I think I only read it maybe about two years ago or so as part of Dracula Daily. I was one of those people that read it in chunks in my email, but I enjoy it. I now own specifically the paperback printing edition with illustrations by Jay Lee. So it's all just this really thickly inked, creepy monster looking shit. And it's very nice. Jay Lee is such a good pick for that. I had, as a kid, a surprisingly gruesomely illustrated like kids version of the book that I don't even think, I think it was still, like, it was explicitly supposed to be children, but then also, like, it was, the pictures were all, like, black and white pencil drawings with red for the blood. Hell yeah. And so, you know, and you've got, um like, Lucy Westerner. There's this one page with Lucy Westerner, which is just terrifying looking. Like, I can see it in my head right now. I'm like, yeah, no, it's still, like a real nasty, like, vampire lady with the thangs, and then this red splatter along the page and getting up towards her mouth that was supposed to be, I, I like, it was a young reader's edition. Yeah. I don't know how that happened, uh, but I am eternally grateful for that. So, yeah, I, I can't even remember the first time I read Dracula, and I'm actually currently listening to an audio version of Dracula Daily, uh, that's being produced by some people who, like, I'd listened to some other audio stuff they've done. They did a Doctor Who audio series. And so, yeah, still currently consuming Dracula. Like audiobook or like radio play style recording? 
Uh, re- they've cast all of the characters, and they're reading their like journal entries or letters that the characters have written, and then when people are speaking in it, because it's just a reading of the book, but when characters are speaking, it is the different actors still. So the dialogue is done by the person who's speaking, and then each section is done by the same person who plays the character who's written that bit of the book. Nice. Yeah, it's like the optimal way of doing it, I think. You know, having just somebody cast for everything. Yeah, and like having each actor read their characters writing sounds like a way of trying to preserve the epistolary aspect of it too yeah i find that element can get really lost in audiobooks if you only have a single narrator i think it's kind of vital when you're working with something that has the multiple narrators to have someone for each narrator in the reading at the very least, if not a full cast. I do enjoy a full cast, but like it's I think you can get a perfectly good audiobook with just one narrator for most books. But then there's some books where it's like, yeah, you need this little extra bit. Yeah. With regards to Dracula Motherfucker itself, I'm pretty positive this is the first time we've discussed anything from DeCampi or Henderson. Is that correct? Yep. In fact, I think it is the only DeCampi written thing I've even read. Um, Henderson, obviously, I first saw on Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, which is a classic, and the whole reason I read this. Yeah. Ditto on Henderson Appreciation. I don't think I've read other DeCampi work either. Thinking back on it, I think we've covered very few image comics in general. I have to say, looking at DeCampi's work, I might pick the Judge Dredd story she wrote for a Dredd story at some point, because I am, as someone who is British, I am very overdue making you read something from 2080. You still have yet to do that, yeah. And I need to read the Al Ewing stuff, but I also need to read this because this Judge Dredd story is in continuity with the movie from 2012 that is my favorite version of Judge Dredd. So we shall see. That said, Ewing's one features a Doctor Who parody. So there you go. Yeah. She also wrote, uh, Alex DeCampi wrote um, Archie versus the Predator, which I know was a hit. I, I haven't read it. I, I haven't really read any Archie. But people might know her from that. Something called Smoke, which apparently did really well. It was nominated for the Eisner Award, so there you go. I would be interested in us doing some Archie at some point. Feels like a fairly iconic little character to have not gotten around to, especially since it's so different from anything else that's that, like, I guess just famous. We should read the Riverdale comics. I've not watched any of that show, even. I haven't either. I'm just aware, sort of generally, of how insane it got over time, which I think is just inherently very funny. And at some point, I kind... Like, if it wasn't such a huge time investment, I would be like, should I just watch this? But it's such a huge time investment. 
We could also read Archie Meets the Punisher. I have that. Oh, that would be great. I'd read that. I'd read any of the Archie Meets. I mean, Archie Meets the Predators clearly going to be entertaining. I'm sure there's there's definitely a bunch of others. They did like a ton. They recently, over, I don't know, maybe the last five years or so, have also had a bunch that are just like specifically paranormal. Like, I know there's a bunch of, like, werewolf jughead shit out there. Archie meets Glee. Archie meets Kiss. Batman 66. That makes sense. Punisher. Predator. Flash Gordon. The Ninja Turtles. The B-52s. The Ramones. Nice. We are taking a little bit of time to meander this week around tangential topics largely because this graphic novel is only like 50 pages long there's like there's a lot to talk about but there's also at the same time not a lot to talk about if that makes sense so much of it is just specific examples of going this is really pretty now what henderson does on this page is really pretty in this way and then you turn the page and this spread is different in this way and still pretty like, it's really pretty, but it's also really effective horror imagery. Yeah. I suppose, stylistically, one of the main things that immediately jumps out to me, which I think is pretty common across all of Henderson's work, but certainly specifically here, is that she's the sort of artist that often strays away from a bunch of, say, like, thick black outlines, like, a bunch of the spreads and pages will have the panels just, like, against a white background without an actual outlined grid, and the coloration throughout has a lot going on, and it's a large part of the success here, but a lot of it just has these really bright, saturated, sometimes almost neon shades and tones to it that fervor contrasts against just like the black of shadows and of so much of the story taking place at nighttime because this is a Dracula book and just has this a real dichotomy between just like the black of the shadow and the evil and just the sense of monstrosity to the setting compared with the constant really bright blaring lights and coloration and sort of fluid character forms especially where Dracula himself is concerned I, I the colors which Henderson does herself here which like she doesn't on Unbeatable Scroggle, but I think in almost everything else she's drawn, she does the colors as well. They really help capture the 70s setting, like the way that everything is lit with these colored lights. You know, you've got the LA sunset or um, sunrise shooting like this bright orange glare over everything. Like, I think they're so important to just the whole vibe and the period setting like i'm not sure if it weren't for the aesthetic that this couldn't be happening in hollywood like 
now or in the early 2000s. The main plot contrivance or like notable aspect time period wise is really just that characters aren't running around with cell phones. But otherwise, yeah, it feels sort of nonspecific. I suppose maybe it also feels a bit older in that journalism and media have just gotten to be so much harder of fields to work in. So the fact that our protagonist is squeaking out a living as a photographer maybe also hints to it being a bit older in time period. But yeah. Speaking of which, we should probably go over the plot just so people have context for everything else we have to say. So essentially, we open in Vienna in 1889, where it's established that Dracula's brides betray him and nail him to the bottom of a coffin and bury it in order to, like, stop him. Like, they're they're overthrowing Dracula. This is where we first see Dracula in this, which is a design we're definitely going to have to talk about more later. But what winds up happening is Bebe Boland, who is an actor who is, like, it's very swiftly established that she's, I mean, she's a woman in Hollywood, and she's, like, getting a bit older. And so she decides that logically what she needs to do is free Dracula so he can turn her into a vampire so she'll have eternal youth, and she won't get any older. The end result of this is uh, what appears to be everybody in the party being brutally killed. And Quincy Harker, who is named for the son of Jonathan Harker and Mina Harker in the original Dracula novel, because they name him after uh, Quincy Arthur, I want to say, who dies killing Dracula towards the end of that book. And when they have their kid, they like name him in honor of their dead friend. Quincy's a crime photographer. He basically just takes crime scene photos and makes very little money uh, getting these really seedy photos of dead women printed. He, You could say, perhaps, that he is something of a vampire himself. He, for example, gets called a parasite several times. Like... There's this thematic connection between sort of everyone. Like, everyone in this story is a vampire, somehow. Even if they're not sucking blood, they are living off of other people, like parasites. That is what this town has done to everyone. But because he took these pictures, Boland and Dracula uh, decide that they're going to target him. And he winds up getting manipulated by Dracula's wives so that they can use him as bait to get Dracula into a vulnerable position where they can kill him. And that's essentially the whole plot. Yeah, the setting is very specifically mirroring the themes of it all with regards to use of other people. And it is much more heavily centered around the wives than the original novel is. Yeah, the the LA is vital to this story, but, like, if you made this the plot of an episode of Angel, where it's set in the early 2000s, 
it would still work. Like, I think that this, the time period is the vibes, but LA, it has to be LA. It has to be LA at least up until the 2010s. I think that elements of LA that make this story sort of work changed a fair bit heading into like our current sort of Hollywood setup. But um, the 70s visuals are just really great. Like there's this guy with this awful 70s haircut and sideburns who's like the first victim at the ho- at the party. You know, you've got the the clunky film camera. Everyone's wearing like a leather jacket. The cars are all vintage. I I think that like the choice of setting is fantastic, including the time period, just because it feels so unique. Like you don't see a Dracula story set in the seventies. That doesn't really ever happen. You know, everyone goes for the present day, or they go for the eighteen nineties. And doing the period thing, but in a different way, it's really cool. But LA and vampires just work so well. Yeah. Is it too early, or should we go ahead and dive into the way Dracula is artistically rendered? Let's Yeah, let's just talk about the frankly amazing choices made in visualizing Dracula. Because you have definitely not seen Dracula visualized like this. In anything else. This is wholly unique. So Dracula in this comic. It is a vaguely humanoid shape. And sometimes you see his hands. And arms. And there are humanoid hands and arms. That sort of look like they're coming out from a cloak. But then you see the face. And it is a black abstract shape. With fangs and a mouth, and the fangs are huge, exaggerated, like saber tooth level fangs. A pure black face that sort of seems to trail off like smoke or like draped cloth. You know, it's it's just like it's very abstract in the way that it's shaped, and since it's pure black, there's no details to settle on what exactly this is. And then a mass of eyes there's a lot of panels where all you see is just this black silhouette behind characters and then the bright red mouth and the eyes that all have this red outline and then just this like narrow slit of a pupil in the middle and it's just fantastic it's it's pure monster mode dracula like this dracula isn't really seducing anyone he's got his hypnosis but it's very explicitly hypnosis and it's very specifically not a matter of sexual attraction. It's more just like social power, which in terms of thematically in the updated setting also sort of goes hand in hand with the obvious parallel of this Dracula to say an abusive, sexually skeevy, power figure in Hollywood. This Dracula's Harvey Weinstein. You yeah. nobody wants to sleep with him. Yeah. The afterwards as well, because this graphic novel has two afterwards, one by Henderson and one by DeCampi. They sort of explicitly discuss 
their desire for the Dracula design and specifically not wanting him to be sexy and wanting to make sure that he still feels very monstrous and inhuman. In terms of execution, a lot of it really comes down to how fluid his form is. Like, he doesn't sort of stay confined to one consistent size or shape. Depending on the page and panel, we'll sort of see his body billow out and get larger or sort of take on a bit of a liquid quality as we see like bits of mass sort of float off detached from the rest of him. And then like you mentioned, the eyes, there's also just sort of the inconsistency of just how many eyes and the way they sort of slide around or off of the not face and all of those details mixed with just the like black expanse. And I mean, black as in the actual color black, you know, lack of light black of the rest of the body where just like the whites and the reds of the eyes and the mouth just pop so vividly against the backdrop of the rest of his body. There's this great, uh, so on the page where they're threatening, like the guy who runs the magazine that Quincy takes the photos for, um, Dracula is in the bottom panel of both pages. And since the book was entirely laid out in spreads, which is something that Henderson talks about in the afterwards Dracula's mouth is in both panels but the eyes are shared between the two panels like a series of eyes float in the space in the margin between the panels back over so that they are part of both images of Dracula's face yeah there's a lot of details like that in the compositions sort of link spreads together that we could talk about and real quick before we leave just like the Dracula design itself I'll also just quickly note that the one part of him that looks most human is when we get these occasional glimpses of his arms that just look like human arms so it's this one sort of specific grounding detail that leaves in just enough humanity to the monster and because it's his arms and hands it sort of just enhances this feel of you know like groping and of possession and just the fret of touching of her characters like in the two-page spread where he's going in to do the bite on Harker's neck and we just see these like predatory hands clasped around his entire body. On the subject of hands, the page before that where uh, he is approaching Harker, we see the silhouette of his hands and the silhouette of some more hands and the silhouette of even more hands. And while we never see him with like a bunch of arms, this like just sometimes when we're sort of seeing a POV shot or something, there's just there's more hands than there should be. And that's just so weird and creepy. Yeah, it's all the better for being not specifically defined 
you know, like, it's not just, oh, he has extra arms. It's that we don't even know how many there are, how many there can be. We also need to talk about the way that he is lettered. Because everybody else has pretty normal, just standard word balloons. But every time Dracula talks, it's in a different font that's uh, much neater. It's a hollow font. So, like, the inside of a lot of the letters is um, empty. I really should know what you actually officially call that, and I can't think of it right now. And there's no balloon or anything. It's just written on the panel, you know, normally, like, red or white to contrast with the background. It works on a lot of levels. Like, visually, it's simply a pleasing font to look at. But it's also very reminiscent of just sort of like fancy fonts that you would associate with classic books, like the way that a lot of older books will have, say, the first letter or the first word of a chapter rendered in this more ornate fashion, or just, you know, sort of classic, really laborious script in general. It has a sort of authoritative bent to it, lent to it by that sort of official aesthetic, that like ancient respectability sort of aesthetic, and the note about the lack of ward balloons just further distinguishes him from the rest of the characters on a power level which, again, has the layers to it, the double meanings in the modern setting with regards to his social positioning, and also, of course, works on a more sort of base, like, these are the rumblings of a monster, this is not normal human speech. Without the word balloon, it's even, where does this word, where is he even speaking out of? You know, like, yeah, he's got a mouth, but, like, word balloons are normally pointing towards characters' mouths because that's where you speak from. And here, without it, and with the fluidity of the formula, like, is the, are, are the words just, are people just hearing him speak? Is he even speaking, really? Is this, because, like, it could just all be in, like, someone's mind. He could just be projecting his thoughts into people's heads. That's a thing Dracula can do. We all know that. It does sort of give that sort of sense, yeah, that sort of telepathic communication. It just makes him more alien and stranger and more threatening. Yeah. What do we think of, I suppose, the other main antagonist, the woman who resurrects him uh bb boyland i suppose is maybe how it's pronounced Uh, i read it boland boland that that makes more sense yeah so she feels very archetypal like the thing about how short this book is is there's a lot of characters you know you've got quincy you've got dracula you've got the three brides you've got Boland, you've got the other bride. There's another new bride. He makes two new brides for him so far. And but I she works for me 
because it is very much like that classic Hollywood idea of, okay, she's a woman, she's about to turn 30, and she's about to be too old for all of these men. She won't be able to play alongside Clark Gable anymore, even though Clark Gable is like 55. Every time he's in a movie, they still put him up against someone who's 27. Yeah, I think you're right that she is archetypal, like all the characters are. So I don't know that there's a whole lot of depth to her. But I do appreciate the fact that she is not just a victim of Dracula's, like that she releases him from his imprisonment of her own volition. It sort of fits again with a little bit of what the afterwards talk about conceptually with regards to just like some women in the industry sort of aligning themselves with power for their own benefit. You know, it makes her into this sort of fellow complicit, fellow abuser sort of dynamic in relation to the other female characters. So I like that we get that sort of, I suppose, just like dynamic and nuance and that it gives us a sort of variety in the positions and standings of the women throughout. Yeah, for me, the most interesting thing about the way that this story approaches all of the brides, but I would say especially Boland, is it's treated more as though it's a deal with a devil than a seduction. Like, they're getting something out of it. They're getting internal life. You know, they're getting at least the feeling of having power. You know, they get to be vampires too, but they're still subordinate to Dracula, so they don't really have independent power. But they get to feel like they have that. I suppose if we're carrying on the Harvey Weinstein metaphor, Boland is like the actor actress who comes out, you know, when like 30 women have come out with an accusation against someone and says, oh, I never had any problem with him. And it's like, I mean, even maybe you didn't, but like, clearly, you know, <laughs> listen to the, like, why? Okay. Listen to these people. There's a lot more of them. You're in a different position. Yeah. With regards to the brides, because they're such a big part of this, I can't remember because it's been so long since I read it. I don't know if you happen to remember. How many brides are present in the original novel? Was it specifically three. three? Okay. Yeah, it's three like this, although I I would say that in the novel they're not meant to be quite as diverse as they are here. I think one of them is described as darker than the other, but that could have just been the hair color. Yeah. It It is an 1890 book, um, and it is a pretty racist book at several points. So I'm sure that maybe one of them was meant to be, you know, but I can't remember for sure. Uh, but like, yeah, these are clearly meant to be those brides from the book in the sense that any character is the character from the book. You know, again, it's more just vibes. Yeah, Dracula has three brides because it's also like, you know, the three witches in Macbeth or... um. All those, uh, 
for some reason now I'm having a hard time thinking of there being three people standing in a line in literally every fantasy or mythology. There's it's always three of them. And if it's not three, it's like seven or nine. The trio is always just sort of pleasing as well. It's just one of those numbers that for whatever reason the human mind just sort of latches onto and enjoys. But yeah, the brides in this, um, again, we don't get, because it is so short, we don't get a lot with them. But I really love their designs. Like, I really like the choice. If you look at like their designs and some of the back matter as well, where you actually get, I think, more clear shots than you do in the comic, they, they, the three of them are clearly from different places. And it immediately, like, because if, if they're from the 1890s, Dracula's not meeting. Like, it, it speaks to the sort of worldwide threat of Dracula and the way this Dracula moves from place to place, you know, picking people up that he's victimizing. Like, I like that choice. Yeah. And the fact that they're all so different also sort of speaks to the fact that they weren't a group that he sort of recruited all at once, you know? It's a series of women that he preyed on individually and would have just like systematically isolated as opposed to them all having a very clear connection beforehand. Yeah, these women definitely didn't know each other before they met Dracula and then probably found out about the other ones after they'd agreed to be his bride. You know, Dracula has that vibe of like, Oh, yes, yes, of course. You're, you know, you're the one for me. Five minutes later, here's my other wives. He even does it in this, uh, where he says, I cannot have just one bride while forcing um, Boland to uh, summon this other woman from the coroner's. I don't know who this is. I think it's just someone they've killed. Oh, it's, I think it's just the lady who was dead on the, um, in the, uh, Oh, what's that even called? It's the thing that they they that that LA has that have the bridges go over that the whole incredible action sequence in Terminator 2 is set in. The big concrete thing that's supposed to have water in it but never seems to. I'm not sure. I I'm really annoyed that I don't know the name of that. But like, you know, talk about using the setting well. It's it's a lot of recognizable LA landmarks in this. I really like uh, very early on, we get the Hollywood sign, but it is both backwards and upside down with the sun, like a red sun rising or setting behind it uh, on the page where uh, Boland is like releasing Dracula. It's just like such an immediately recognizable landmark. And you're like, oh, okay, I know exactly where and when this is. From that and from, I mean, obviously they also tell you, but like it's distorted in a way that throws you off because you see the shape and you already know it's the Hollywood sign, even upside down. That shape is just, I also the shape doesn't really change that much when you flip it around and turn it the other way around, but it's just sort of inherently disturbing to see something so recognizable just in this weird way. Yeah. In the original novel, I remember mentions of wolves and, like, 
of wolves howling. Do you happen to recall if the novel sort of implied Dracula himself being able to take on a sort of wolf form? I can't remember for sure. Yeah, he can. Um, he can do the whole Wolfman thing if he wants. Uh, there's a very memorable sequence in the Francis Ford Coppola adaptation from the 90s, uh, where he Wolfmans out um, while, like, God, was he just feeding or was he also attempting to fuck Lucy? It's kind of both in that one. That one's a very sexual adaptation, so it is constantly kind of both whenever Dracula's feeding on anyone but where he's doing it in like this horrific sort of wolf form. So yeah, I, I, the original book is a little more ambiguous, I think about transformation, but he can control them. Like, I don't think it does the cheesy vampire thing where you like blink and he's turned into a bat or he's turned into a wolf. But like, obviously these are things that he is connected to on this sort of primal power level. Yeah. I bring the topic up really just because of, getting into the final sequence and the brides unveiling their own sort of monstrous forms, which are very, very wolf-inspired. So, yes, at the finale, uh, where the two new brides have both been killed, because the brides and Quincy have been fighting them, there's a massive explosion, you know, just some, like, really cool visual stuff. Uh, We get one of my favorite images of Dracula in this way, he has, like, he is just a black shape with the eyes and five mouths coming out of it. Just even more distorting of, like, the form of this creature. And then the wise reveal that while Dracula was imprisoned in his coffin, they took their own brides and husbands and did the same trick he'd been doing to them where they use them to gain more power. Like, because essentially it's established that this version of Dracula, what he does with his brides is he sets them up against each other so that they're competing to be, like, the main one. And so they're going out and they're drinking blood and they're consuming people and they're gaining more power of their own. And then he kills and takes that power somehow from each of them in turn. And That's why these three rebelled against him. But they have now done the same trick where they have been powering themselves up. And so they turn into full monstrous forms like Dracula, where they look like many-headed wolf monsters. I mean, it's fantastic. They look so freaky. And the violence of these pages sort of devolves because they they also have them like multiple eyes, um, We'll talk about the first reveal panel because I think that like a detail of the way the eyes are done in that panel is actually really important. But throughout the sequence, they're literally like ripping away the black shapes around Dracula. And it's like he seems to be sort of like underneath the pure just sort of black that we haven't been able to tell what it is. He looks really red and fleshy. And then they're just ripping him apart. And all you can just sort of see is eyes and shapes and like it's clear that they're winning, but the way that the 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 abstractness of all the characters that are fighting makes it just this sort of distortion of color and shape and form. It's really interesting to look at 
and just like it's it's yeah it's more just really striking henderson work i'll include some examples in the instagram post when this goes up in a few weeks but this ending sequence i think has some of just like the most striking contrast between the light and dark values on the page particularly the like black and red of dracula as he's getting just feasted on by the wives at this point who are like glowing white and golden wolves the initial transformation where hang on i'll actually get her name because it is in the back it's either a tira or a lira i can't tell because of the font <laughs> uh, scratch that scratch the name uh I where think the first it's wife, a lira probably a lira like a tira seems like a weirder name but looking at the font it's it's actually genuinely hard to tell for sure i um, think the bar is just for the a yeah, I I would have chosen a different font if I wanted people to actually know the name of these characters, but that being the only note, real note I have from this comic other than I could have used with it being like three to four times the length, you know, if I want it to be longer, that means you're doing good, interesting stuff. Yeah. So the first reveal of the wolf form, it the eyes are done the same way as Dracula's eyes in that there's multitudes of them and they're flowing off of where you would expect the head to be you know and they're all that sort of similar abstract shape to his even though the wives sort of forms are more solid than dracula's because i mean we we are talking about they look recognizably sort of wolfish but alira specifically has this big eye that is completely sideways in the middle of her head in like a very third eye opening sort of moment i mean the whole third eye imagery is like a thing in all kinds of different cultures you know it's signifying like normally some sort of spiritual awakening you know it's normally used in fantasy stuff for someone like being psychic you know looking around with their third eye and i think it's very interesting to associate this character revealing oh i've become a manipulator like Dracula, involves opening her third eye. This is less a third eye than just the sort of limitless eyes note, but it doesn't say anything like this explicitly, but the concept just sort of came to my mind of the idea of the eyes as just sort of like plucked from the victims or just otherwise a representation of what they're saying of having taken their own spouses and drawn power from them yeah that makes sense actually that makes a lot of sense because in a way well because eyes are the window to the soul is obviously like a cliche thing to say but like eyes can be really representative of people and if you have a lot of eyes and you've explicitly been gaining power by consuming people that makes sense. This makes two weeks in a row of horror surrounding the eyes, considering a lot of Hikaru's best melting moments was when the goop specifically would like take over half his face 
or like the eye itself would be melting. And also monsters from outside um, that have like gooey, formless black shapes as their main visual signifier. Yeah. I, I'm not actually sure what we're reading next week, so like we need to, how can we keep this theme going? I'll have to find a Hellboy that's got, um, that's got a gooey black enemy. I actually don't think there was one. I think our trend alert, regardless, is good horror comics. I think we're sticking very well on theme. Yeah, I, I, it's like, just, it's, this it's just really good. Um, if you have Hoopla, if you're able to get Hoopla from your local library listeners, you, this is probably on there. I just checked in on Amazon. The hardcover is $17. You know, like, go read this. Yeah. You need to look at this art yourself is like a big part of the appeal of this is just looking at just how incredible this all looks. Yeah. Audio medium. You know, we discuss it, but we can't fully convey it. But everything we've said about it and more, I'll reiterate what I believe you mentioned earlier of Henderson specifically constructing the whole book in spreads and thinking about how the pages would look together, just like when the book is cracked open. So even when it's not a single image over two pages, there's still a lot of like linking aspects of, say, a two-page spread where Parker is driving and you'll have like a large panel of the road on one page will sort of extend into the background behind the main action of the next page on the other side of the spread. It's just a very pretty book. The physical edition also is very nice. Like the paper quality does a good job of holding the color in. It's very bright. Hardcover's nice. It feels well-made. The interior whatever you call like the inside of the cover and back cover on a hardcover book, that sort of first opening layer of paper is just like black with the disruption of this Dracula's eyes. It's very nice. Yeah. I'm going to have to get the physical edition because I, I have only read on a tablet. And so while some of the pages are treated as spreads in this, and I'm able to sort of look at the whole thing. Uh, they have on the pages where the framing isn't, like, it isn't vital that it's presented as a two-page spread for it to be readable. The digital version, at least on Hoopla, has still sliced it into two pages. I think just to save you the trouble of having to zoom in to look at every single page, which does make sense. But is a bit of a shame, given the way that this that the uh, comic was composed so specifically. Yeah. But this is the advantage of doing a graphic novel over a series of issues, is they could actually do this. They didn't have to think about or worry about ad placement or anything like that that you normally have to do with like monthly comic book issues. 
And so what we have is something that's very self-contained and very just designed to be this sort of singular experience where it's just like, oh, we can kind of do whatever you want in terms of the art and everything, as long as it's still readable. Have you ever seen the issue of New X-Men and Floppy where they just straight up suck an ad in the middle of a two-page spread and it literally cuts the art off? No, but that doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah, at some point when I look through those again, I'll try to find it to show you. But yeah, reading the afterword where they were like, we didn't have to worry about ads fucking things up. I was just like, ah, yes, artists being allowed to make art without having to worry about stupid shit fucking it up. I suppose you have any more notes or any aspects of the book we didn't already get to that you still want to talk about nothing especially aside from how interesting the ending is in terms of like the thematic nature of the book where you know we talked about this earlier where everybody is sort of a vampire and at the end you know the last person to literally become a vampire is quincy and the final bit of the book is the three brides welcoming him to their like little vampire club and there's the, the the sort of question of okay is he going to become a victim to them the way that they have clearly had victims before um is he going to go on to victimize other people i i mean yeah he is because he's turned into a vampire and he has to like drink people's blood but is he going to continue this cycle set up by dracula that the brides have continued like just thematically, it's interesting to continue this, like for the ending of this to be sort of a a new beginning. It is sort sense? of, yeah, it is sort of open thematically in terms of how monstrous are these women? How monstrous are they going to continue to be? How monstrous is he going to be? You know, like is because we see basically nothing of the bride's time between the 1800s uh, prologue and the modern day events. We don't know anything about, say, their victims, where they drew the power. Have they been slaughtering innocents? Have they been going after more predators? you know, whatever sort of discourse you could have about, like, who is okay to victimize, getting back at abusers, etc., etc. Like, we don't know, because sort of the focal points or the focal character is Harker, and we don't know much more than he does. You know, we don't really know how monstrously these women have been acting and will continue to act. And there's sort of the question of how much of this action of taking down Dracula is heroic and how much of it is just like self-involved revenge or power play. They are all the kind of women who would make that deal with the devil for power or life or whatever it was that they were seeking out specifically in the first place. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I, I, I think that in all probability, you know, this is 
a continuing cycle of vampire violence. And I think the choice of taking Quincy, who, you know, as we said, his job is likened to being a parasite, which what is a vampire but a parasite from the start in the way that he is taking advantage of horrific crimes to make money. And now he may have to commit some horrific crimes just to live. Yeah. Listeners, for more wholesome vampire content, go back to episode seven. Fangs. Yes, Fangs, where everyone could just get blood delivered and they didn't have to hunt people down for it. Yeah. Where it was freeze-dried in the fridge if it wasn't also just taken care of by being a kink during sex. If you like LA vampire shit, watch Angel. Yeah. This this vibes very similarly to some uh some of the better episodes of that show. You know, the Joss Whedon of it all is complicated, but lots of other people also worked on it. So yeah. Yeah. I suppose then are you ready for me to tell you what to read? Yeah. Yeah. What am I what am I reading for next week? So last year we dove into adaptation of classic horror writer Stephen King. This year, we will similarly be talking about horror literary adaptation, which I guess to a degree we already are this week with the Dracula inspiration. But in a more direct sense, we will be discussing Clive Barker, We will be reading Volume 1 of Tapping the Vein, a series of graphic novels from Eclipse Books that feature adaptations of Barker's short stories. Sweet. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. I assume you haven't read it yet? Nope. No, I was holding off until I knew when we were reading it. Yeah. Look forward to it. Volume 1 has two different stories in it. Each one is adapted by a different artist. But otherwise, that's it for this week. Thank you all for listening, and we will see you then. Bye. Bye. Excellent to each other.